go. Hello, all you lovely people trying to make the world a better place. Welcome to the Dead Man Walking Podcast. I am your host, repeatedly dead Fred, author of the soon-to-be-released memoir, The Summer I Died 20 Times, which is actually what happened to me. Thus the name, Repeatedly Dead Fred. Today, we are going to be talking small business and legal issues with international woman of mystery, Samantha Bradshaw, who may or may not be a relation to Carrie Bradshaw. That's up for you to figure out. So, Samantha, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Fred. I appreciate you having me. Glad to have you. This is going to be so much fun. So It's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> you, you've got a bit of a global story. I mean, you started off in the USA and somehow you ended up in one of the most war-torn countries in the world. So I, how, how yeah. did that happen? So, uh, well, if you listen to my grandfather, he'll tell you that I was never bound to stay in the U.S. anyway. Somehow he mm -hmm. knew long before I did, as our mm -hmm. elders typically do, right? right. Um, but after after law school, uh, I decided that I, I didn't want to fetch coffee, basically, for partners mm -hmm. at law firms because I graduated into the recession. Right. Um, so partners were still getting fired. They certainly weren't hiring new baby lawyers straight out of law school for associate positions. Uh, government hiring was completely uh, frozen. Mm -hmm. So those positions were, were pretty much dried up. That wasn't really an option either. So I think that's when that kind of entrepreneurial bone started kicking in of like, well, what else can I do? Mm -hmm. And what do I want to do? And so this was the 2008 recession? This was, and I graduated in 12. It took lawyers a little longer to get to the recession because we were right. so busy cleaning up everybody else's messes for those first couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but everything hits legal a little bit later. Like financials are typically the first to get hit. And then all the, the white collar industries and lawyers are, are the last because they got to clean everything up. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I wanted to go somewhere on the Mediterranean because who wouldn't want to go to the Mediterranean? Right. Um, I wanted to go somewhere where I could work on my minuscule amount of Arabic or my very bad high school Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go somewhere that would be very open to and needing of a, a, an American lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I packed my bags. I booked a one-way ticket to Beirut, Lebanon. And... Wow. I had a, a job lined up at a, a bar within like two weeks of being there, bartended for my first three months, kind of made my way around, met a bunch of people. And eventually it turned out that one of my customers at the bar, his best friend's wife had a law firm. So I went and interned with them for a little bit, met some other lawyers, and then wound up kind of landing on my feet at a really amazing firm that I, I'm still quite good friends with them called Eptelex uh, that's so expanded all through the region. What the, what are the odds that you graduate the bar only to end up working in a bar? Well, you know, it's one of those soft skills, um, mm -hmm. waitressing, bartending, hostessing. For sure. That if, you, if you've got 30 or 40 words in any language, you can do it anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, especially at a bar. Right. The menu is not too complicated. It's, it's mm -hmm. nachos and vodka Red Bulls. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Those words stay pretty standard across the globe, so that's not too too terribly difficult. So, how long did you stay there? 
So I was in Lebanon for five years, as a matter of wow. fact. Wow, yeah. that's a significant chunk of time. It was. It was fantastic. It's. It was. I. I did some really amazing stuff at the law firms that I was working at. Um, I traveled to some amazing places, and I actually I met the man who became my husband. So oh. not bad. Cool. Yeah. Were you there uh, for the big blast? I'm not sure what year that was. I, I was were, not were there for the then? blast. Um, my my at the time still boyfriend. Um, his job had been moved to New York about a year before the blast. So I moved okay. with him to New York and yeah, no, the blast was, I think actually this is a fact that not a lot of people know about the blast, even if they know about it mm-hmm. by sheer dumb luck. Uh, the government had actually shut down bars and restaurants that day because there had been a spike in COVID cases in the country Mm-hmm. And the blast happened on a Friday, at like six thirty in the in the evening, mm-hmm. and the street where all these bars and restaurants are is less than half a kilometer from the blast site. So fortunately, the street was relatively empty. So deaths were incredibly low given the size yeah. of the explosion. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, damage is massive. I mean, that doesn't make it any better. But the loss of life was was by sheer dumb luck significantly mm-hmm. less than it would have been otherwise yeah and, and for those of you who don't know what the blast is i mean because it's just known as the blast it is um, just the blast it's such a it's lebanon right it's they yeah they create these very like unique names that everybody if you know the region you understand yeah um google the blast or um you know go on youtube for the blast and the the shock wave like you can just see the shock wave it's 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 scary it's so so scary and uh yeah thank god so many less there were a lot not a lot of people killed or injured as compared to what it could have been yeah yeah it 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 should have been thousands or tens of thousands and it was i think like 200 yeah Uh, and the backstory behind how the blast occurred and all those munitions and gunpowder uh it was got lost in the system it was ammonium yeah. nitrate that kicked it off. The same thing from the is it Oklahoma City bombing as yes. well. The same yeah. same chemical, but the biggest ammonium nitrate explosion in history. Yeah, yeah, scary stuff. Okay, yeah. glad you weren't there. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. Um, I've got pictures of my apartment. Um, I'm very glad I wasn't there. My apartment was was questionable. My cat would not have. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he would have run away. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm very glad that that was not the case. But yeah, okay. so I'll you moved to things. New York. So I moved, moved to, to New, New York, York. Um, and decided that, you know, I, I this whole bone of like, well, this isn't working how I would like it to. So how can I do what I want to? And I, I had a very, very dear friend uh, back in Lebanon who was trying to open a, a small business. So he came to me and was like, look, I need to get all of this legal stuff in order. Um, and he was opening a board game cafe, which I think is like, it's like one of the most heartwarming things I've ever heard of in my life. Um, he really wanted to use board games to help. There's a lot of trauma in Lebanon, right? There's a lot of PTSD Mm -hmm. and generational trauma, right? I mean, it's, it's continued for a while. Uh, and he really wanted to use board games to encourage people to learn how to disagree, how to communicate 
how to take loss, how to win with, you know, composure and, and class. And, and how I, to play. I just, how to play, how to have fun. And like mm-hmm. the, the way that we learn as children, he wanted to move that to teenagers and young adults and adults. Um, which I, I just, I thought it was such a beautiful idea and I love board games myself. So I was fully in support mm-hmm. of this whole thing. So he actually came to my, my firm when, when I was in Beirut and was like, I need to do all of these things. And Lebanon actually requires small businesses to have a lawyer on retainer, all businesses. Mm-hmm. You must have a registered lawyer, okay. which can create some additional bureaucracy, but as the business lawyer, I've seen so many issues be prevented because we were there for those companies. Unfortunately, the firm that I was working for, um, basically, they said he was too small fish. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when you start working with really big firms. They they have minimum budgets that they work with. Their overheads are very high. They're not concerned with startups. They're concerned with people that have already had a certain revenue ceiling Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to run into that again in New York. And I knew the types of places that I would work at, that I would apply, that I'd be qualified for. I'd run into that issue again. And I wanted to be able to help my friend. So I actually opened my own virtual law firm right before the pandemic, which was targeted very specifically at micro businesses, mm-hmm. uh, which means businesses with less than 25 employees and trying to be that lawyer on retainer in a way to prevent issues from happening in the first place. Because just like what your doctor says, right? Like it's cheaper for you to prevent the issue than it is for you to have the emergency surgery. For sure. But it's harder and it requires forethought and it requires planning and things that when we're trying to lift a small business off the ground, maybe are not at the forefront of your mind because you're more concerned about your bank account numbers, which Mm -hmm. is completely understandable. So that's I, I created this whole firm around this and that's kind of what I do now which is kind of exciting cool so you ended up moving from New York to somewhere a little warmer and just a smidge, uh, just a smidge <laughs> with a slightly different language um mm-hmm. and so you're working with small businesses and you know we all know uh small business stats like uh depending on who you talk to 80 percent fail within the first year because you know they don't plan for contingency A, B, C, D, and E. Um, But as we talked about before we started recording, if you can make a small business work in this crap economy, you're a superstar and the odds of your business surviving and thriving go up dramatically. So, um, and I guess you've seen that as well with your practice. Completely. Um, The businesses that I was working with that had started up before the pandemic when the economy was going really well, they're having a harder time pivoting, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word, scaling down expenses, finding new creative ways to bring in money. Not all of them, but it's definitely it's significantly more than the ones that have kicked off between the pandemic and now. Because mm-hmm. be- between the pandemic and now, business owners have had no other option than to make sure that that their business was flexible, that it was agile, that it was able to pivot and change on a dime to be able to deal with potential recession, shutdowns, right? Um, supply chain issues. All of these are real problems that businesses have simply had to deal with. But if they were able to build up their processes and their systems in a way of 
everything was normal and they never really had to deal with one of those blows before the blows mm -hmm. hit a little bit harder mm -hmm. yeah <clears throat> and dealing with less inventory and better service that's one yeah. of the things i've really noticed that's uh, been amplified through these last couple of years i think curated inventory is what I've seen from product-based businesses. Rather than having a storefront that's got a thousand different things, they've got mm -hmm. a storefront that has a hundred things, very specific to the customer they want to work with. Mm -hmm. Which is just uh, smart. It's smart. Which, yeah. And it's less to manage. Look, mm -hmm. this is hard enough. Businesses don't need to create more complication. Um, but when every when the cash is flowing, when everything's going easier, it becomes easier as the business owner or even as a manager, if you if you've got people working under you, to add that complication because you're like, oh, it's fine if it brings in just a small bit extra, but the level of complication that adds to your business, it's not worth that that decrease in efficiency when you start having to cut costs, when you start running into supply chain issues, when you start running into labor issues, right? Mm -hmm. So that's. From what I see, that's why I think these businesses are doing a little better than the ones that started up when, you know, everything was honky-dory and happy. We'll see how it goes, though. We got a few years. Yeah, one of the things I saw as a marketer, and I have friends that are in the consumer goods products uh, area, and, you know, you go to a store and say you're going grocery shopping, you'll see, you know, bag of chips, oversized bag of chips for, you know, $3.99 but you buy three and you get them for three bucks each mm -hmm. and your brain, your lizard brain goes, get the deal, get the deal, get the deal. And it's the same with businesses and their inventory. You know, if you buy 25, it's going to be X amount. But if you buy 200, you know, we're going to take 30% off. You don't actually need 200, but your brain goes discount, 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 you know, and, um, that gets a lot of businesses in trouble. It can. It certainly can, especially if you haven't built up uh, like the logistical issues of storage space. And and is this product going to sell fast enough to get those 200 out the door versus mm -hmm. the 30 before the trend changes or before your marketing goes flat? Because I, I, at least from what I've seen, particularly in marketing post-pandemic, during the pandemic, everyone was kind of stagnant for a second. But post-pandemic, because of the, the 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 huge growth of platforms like TikTok, marketing campaigns have a shorter life. Yeah. So it becomes more prudent to match from what I've seen from physical products anyway, to match your inventory to your campaign life cycle. Which you're supposed to do anyway. It's just we got away with it for so long. Yeah. <laughs> everybody had excess money to blow. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, you probably spend a lot more time on TikTok than I do. I, I just spend time when somebody so sends me a, um, a stitch, which some of uh, those are good. hilarious. But, some of them are uh, really good. <laughs> I, I don't spend a lot of time on, on TikTok, but I, I understand the value of it. Uh, and social media in general, because um, you know my friends that are looking for traditional jobs in marketing, they're noticing there's job compression. Like the, the job postings that you speak, they want a marketing manager. So your marketing manager would basically be, you know, somebody that had created marketing strategies. Now they want 
a marketing strategist, and a website manager, and an SEO expert, and an Amazon and Facebook ads expert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and a videographer and a photographer and a video editor. Yeah. Uh, these people just don't exist, but they keep asking yeah. for them. They do. So, they're trying. They're trying really hard to, to make the, the folks who put the actual implementation together match up with the strategy folks. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a disconnect there. I'm not sure how that's going to resolve itself, but I'm curious to watch. Well, I don't want to get into an HR rant, but I'll get into an HR rant. Um, we had a, a speaker at one of my alumni events. And I, I'm not going to mention his name, but somebody in the audience said, um, you know, China's economic power is is growing. How what can we do to fend off uh, the Chinese wave, as as it was described? He said, send them our HR departments. Oh, gosh. They're the biggest impediment to to company growth that exists on the planet. You know, normally that's attached to my industry and I'm kind mm -hmm. of glad to hear that it's going to somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> so. But yeah, it's it's tough to have to, to focus on the people that are, their, their roles are risk mitigation. Mm -hmm. And when you find folks that are so worried about the risk, you get a lot of no's and a lot of shutdown mm -hmm. and a lot of hindrance and impediment. When you start finding your risk management professionals, and that be in financial or HR or legal, the ones who say, no, but we can do X, right? When you start having yeah, people who yeah. really understand the different aspects of the business, I think you start losing that impediment that naturally comes with certain industries because of the risk mitigation factor. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a nice twist on it. Yeah. Um, so when we were talking pre-recording, uh, you mentioned a book. I'd like to bring that back into the conversation. Of course. Um, so a lot of what we've been talking about so far has been how businesses are really going to manage with potentially a complicated next few years and what this year has looked like already being potentially very complicated for a myriad of reasons. And one of the largest reasons that businesses go under is cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. There are a million reasons as to why your cash flow can be kind of a problem. A few that we've talked about, inventory issues, selling, marketing campaigns going quickly. On my end, I see people see a lawsuit and they shut down immediately, especially mm -hmm. micro businesses. They're like, no, I can't handle this. Um, so there is a book called Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, which I have been a huge fan of since I opened my own firm even. Uh, because his idea is that you're not going to buy your, your inventory, you're not going to buy your software, you're not going to buy your upgrades or your fancy new camera first, you're going to pay profit first, and then taxes, and then yourself. What's left over at the end of that is what you have to operate your business on. And it makes sure that you don't get into issues with your tax, with the IRS in the US or whatever your tax agency is if you're operating outside of the US, right? You're not having somebody chase you down for that kind of money that can put you off. And you've got this profit fund that you as a business owner can choose to go to a conference that maybe is going to drum up business, or maybe you can use it for R&D to create the new product. Or if you're doing really well and everything's kind of chill, you can use it for vacation or distribute the profit to your employees as a bonus at Christmas. And it doesn't affect the cash flow of your day-to-day -day ability to pay your bills. 
to pay your creditors, to pay your payroll. And it gives you this cushion that a lot of people don't have the foresight necessarily to build into their business from the starting point. And these things are always easier to get right the first time. Mm-hmm. For me, from the legal side, I love it because when you open a business, if you want the protection that comes with registering the business as a limited liability company or as a corporation, it is a requirement that your money as a person be kept entirely separate from the business. And the profit first paradigm, the way that he sets it up, you have no choice. So it guarantees that you keep this protection that the business entities create for you. And the biggest protection that that is, is that if your business gets in trouble, somebody can't take your house from you. They can only Mm -hmm. sue you for what's in the business, not for your personal things. Um, Because the business messed up, not you as a person, right? You're supposed to be like people. So his system forces this separation in the money that allows you to have that protection. And it resolves most cash flow issues that I've seen. So for Mm -hmm. me, it's a great baseline to give to any starting business. And if you're getting to a point where cash flow is looking like an issue, it's a great thing to start implementing then too. So you don't wind up in this position of that insane amount of businesses that don't make it to year one, five, 10, right? Um, so I think that's that's definitely worth a read. It's not a terribly long book. Uh, it's like 150 pages, 175 pages, pretty mm-hmm. big print. And of course there's audiobooks. Pretty big print. <laughs> Um, uh, it makes a difference, right? Small print on yeah. 200 pages is very different than small pr- than big print on 200 pages. For sure. Uh, do you want to touch uh, a, just on the difference between an LLC and a traditionally incorporated company? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so essentially, there are what people think of when they're when they're starting a business. There are three different things that typically come to their head. And if they spent a bit of time on the internet, they've run into this idea of a sole proprietorship, which is the lowest Mm -hmm. level of protection, basically. Uh, And it's because you haven't registered anything and you're just operating as you selling your product service course directly from you. The money is coming from your customer into your bank account. Mm -hmm. And it means if your product, program, service, whatever it may be, does something wrong, you're on the hook personally. That's where we don't want people to be, right? right? Having that separation is crucial in the long run because something is going to happen in your business at some point in time. You are never going to be able to keep things absolutely perfect and everybody absolutely happy. So the next level from that is something called a limited liability company. And it is sort of the, the like the entry level for most small businesses that don't ever intend to become like mega corporations getting mm-hmm. uh, you know initial public offerings on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. If that's not your goal, <laughs> typically an LLC will be fine. If you're building a lifestyle business, right? These are really where we see that. And what the LLC does is it creates that separation. So when your business messes up, nobody can come and take your house. And that's a really easy one to to create in most states. It changes mm-hmm. from state to state in the U.S. Of course. Uh, Everything which, changes state to state. 
you know, I they, they, they call it the United States, but it would be easier if it were a little more united mm-hmm. <laughs> on quite a few fronts, actually. Uh, but so from state to state, this this differs. For example, in Virginia, where I'm licensed, it's either 50 or $100 to file. Mm-hmm. It's a relatively simple form. If you know that's the right entity for you, if you know that's the right business registration for you, most people are intelligent enough and can Google enough and ask enough questions from people that they can figure out the form themselves. And it's a way to create that separation. And the really the biggest crux of what you have to do is what we were talking about. You have to keep your personal money separate from, from your business's money. You can have partners in that. You would have multiple people join onto that, that LLC. When that happens, you need an operating agreement, which is basically legal speak for a contract between the partners of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going to fight. You're going to fight. crazy in, them, in themselves. <laughs> and and you never, you know what, it, it, the way I, a, a lot of folks explain it that I think is, is really good, when you're going into business with somebody, it's like a marriage but you probably haven't had remotely as much time to evaluate that person in the Mm -hmm. ways that you need to, to go into business with them, right? What you evaluate for going into a long-term relationship is slightly different than, than what you would do going into business. But what this does is it sets the ground rules. It's, it's a board game. It sets the rules for how you're going to play the game, Mm -hmm. Uh, which, which really, really helps when you, especially when you've got an even number of partners, you've got two, four, six, Because if you wind up in this deadlock situation where three say yes and three say no, your business has halted the entire thing, everything depending on you and it, unless you have some kind of deadlock mechanism built into those contracts that tells you how you're going to resolve that fight. Mm -hmm. Which most most partnership agreements don't. They forget these little- Amazing to me. Everybody finds these things online. They're like, cool, I signed one. I'm like, do you have any idea what's in it? Yeah, you, you look at professional sports, like you look at baseball, hockey, football, and they spend so much time on tiebreakers. Yeah. How do we resolve a tie? And yeah. uh, take a clue from that. It's important. Yeah. I, I have a couple of buddies who are venture capitalists, and they tell me they spend so much try- time trying to vet the team because mm. they want to know if these people are going to have a divorce you know, yeah. the chief technology officer, the chief researcher is just going to say, I'm going to take my ball and go home. And then, you know, they've had 10, $15 million rounds of investment and and they're just paralyzed. Yeah. So. The entire business comes to a halt for one person if you don't have those contingencies built in. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sure. And, you know, we would always like to hope that no one's going to get to that point of I'm going to take my ball and go home that everybody would be, you know, mature adults that are more invested in the larger idea. And those are, those are the rose colored glasses that we put on when we're starting the business. Um, For sure. The reality. Once you get a couple years in. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So we did uh, sole proprietorship, LLC. Uh Okay. Uh, Incorporation. And And then we've got corporations. Um, so that's really the the highest level of protection. And at that point, really the big difference here is that in the LLC, you could have been operating as, as an owner and as a manager. 
when you go into the corporation, we separate those out entirely. They have completely different roles mm -hmm. and it allows you to give people shares and, and it, you can change this in an LLC with the right agreement, but it gets a bit complicated and you need to talk to a lawyer about that. Mm -hmm. If you know you want people to just give you some money <laughs> and you're going to pay them out profits later, a corporation is typically a good start because that's what it does. It allows the ownership to be owned by everybody who owns the shares and mm -hmm. the management can be done by an entirely separate person and should generally is. Um, when you start talking about really small businesses, this gets a little tricky as to which one is the best. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why going to an accountant and a lawyer, I recommend both, with what you want the business to be in the end. What's your exit strategy? right? Is this a lifestyle business you're trying to give to your kids or maybe your protege? Are you trying to get access to capital funding to, you know, go big and become that unicorn that everybody dreams of being in the tech world? Are you <laughs> trying to get that initial public offering, right? Your exit strategy will dictate which entity makes more sense for you. Yeah, that's so key. And that's, and it's, it's the same thing we've been talking about the whole time, really. It's starting with the end in mind. You're going to get so much further that way. You're going to spend so much less money doing it that way. And mm -hmm. while it may feel tight in the beginning to put out the money to get these things right, I promise over the long run, it will pay dividends again and again. Literally. And again. The, literally. If you pick the corporation, it will pay yeah. dividends. So, uh, and I think people also forget that where their business is today won't be the same as where it is in, say, three years. Certainly not. And you might have to do a little pivot. So if you've been operating as a sole proprietorship or as an LLC, um, you know, you might have to have that hard conversation with the accountant and the lawyer and, and up your status to, um, to an incorporated company. Certainly. And there's, there's other, when you start crossing international borders, there becomes, mm -hmm. if you're selling products, you know, even between Canada and the U.S., right? things get a little trickier and your, your status becomes more important because there's tax implications involved about being able to ship across, you know, country yeah. lines. Yeah. Um, so yeah. really I, I love recommending to people that they get these kind of crucial people that they can come and check in with at least once a year and be like, Hey, this is what we're planning for next year. Is there anything we need to change that's going to save us money or cover our, our backside? Mm -hmm. um, anything that's just really going to help us and set us up for where we want to be. And if mm -hmm. you go to your professionals with that kind of information, we can be so much more helpful to you. For sure. Um, so don't be afraid to communicate with your professionals. Just like if you run into a little bit of cash flow problem, um, generally your creditors don't want to have to buy take your car back like Certainly they not. would no, rather they, have they would cash. to get paid <laughs> yeah but if you just start ignoring them and and not communicating them as a, as a stall tactic they're going to give you much less grace as if you take a preemptive phone call and say uh things didn't work out the last couple of months like we worked on um we can't pay you fully what can we arrange and that's one of the most powerful questions I've come across in my career. What can we arrange? I, I would have to agree with you. Anytime that kind of situation comes up, if they know you've got, you know, the, the right starting place, 
it's so much less paperwork. They don't have to call. I'm not a collections attorney, but they don't have to call a collections attorney to come chase you down. You're not mm -hmm. running away from phone calls and emails and letters. Like that's so stressful. It, it is. And nobody needs that. It's that that conversation is hard, but I promise the one hard conversation is easier than being chased down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agree with that hundred percent. So would you have a list? He asks as if they didn't discuss this beforehand <laughs> of possibly three things, uh, three mistakes that you say small businesses make on the front end on a consistent basis. On the very front end, it's it's staying in that sole proprietorship situation for way too long because they are mm -hmm. convinced the lawyer is going to cost $10,000. And like, for some things, they will. For that, they won't. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I mean, that's really at the very, very front end. Uh, the, other, the other one that I see that I've been spending a lot of time with, especially content creators lately and course mm -hmm. creators, service providers, because there's... Anytime we run into a recession, and in the pandemic, this was huge, even though it wasn't a recession because so many people got laid off. So it acted like a, a weird one in some ways in the small business world. Small business filings went through the roof. Everybody and their mom was like, well, now I'm home. What can I do? <laughs> so everybody started businesses, which is fantastic and amazing. But the problem is they all started businesses with just whatever name popped into their head or the mm -hmm. product, the name, whatever they popped into their head. And they didn't take the time to go see if the name of that product was in, was somebody else's name already, if it was already mm -hmm. being used by another person. And that can become problematic in, in two ways. One, if they already have a registered trademark, they can come after you for cash. They can force you to rebrand. Mm -hmm. They'll send very nasty lawyer letters. And if you don't like it, if you don't listen to them, if you stick your head in the sand, even like what you might with the creditors, things can get really ugly really quick. Um, alternatively, even if nobody was using it, if you don't do that initial search and then make the registration, when somebody else comes and starts using it, you wind up having to fight with them and wasting money on that. And both of these fights are way more expensive than just registering your name in the trademark database in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it's or the same with uh, using music for your intros and outros on, uh, you know, your podcast. <laughs> oh, or don't get me started well, on this, y'all. Please find royalty-free music with commercial licensing. You are mm. not a, what you're using for your personal use on your own TikTok or Instagram because you want to show how cute your dog is. Amazing. That's one thing. If you are using it to sell business products or services in your business. You need a commercial license. You need to go find these specialty sites or better yeah. yet, just like make your own thing. Press a few keys on a piano with a nice microphone next to it. If you have yeah. any musical talent at all. Yeah. I have a song I would love to use and I've um, beta tested it with so many people and it's a Johnny Cash song. It's an old gospel song and it's, you know, he has such a voice and wow. it's called ain't no grave going to keep me down which for oh, that's so you know, fitting for you yeah and there's no way in hell i'm getting to use that so no uh, yeah i don't i don't think his estate's gonna give you that license <laughs> not without you paying a small fortune for it anyway yeah so my brother-in-law is going to write me uh a version of that because uh, he is musically yeah. talented yeah you can you can mimic vibes easily enough 
-hmm. And that's that's something, you know, just to throw this on there, I, I've seen a lot, especially the the folks who started the I'm at home, now I'm gonna start a business in the pandemic thing. A lot of that wound up on Etsy, right? All the, mm -hmm. the small creators, Shopify for the people who got angry at Etsy for raising their rates. There are a handful of intellectual property holders, intellectual property being trademark, this registration that we're talking about, and copyright, which applies to all sorts of art and music, um, that are really aggressive about chasing people down and making sure they're not using their intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Disney, Marvel, the Harry Potter universe, they have hordes of lawyers that their entire job is to go search these platforms and find this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You may claim it's just fan art, but this can get folks in a lot of trouble pretty quickly. A couple of years ago, there was actually a photographer who did the cutest thing. I fully acknowledge it was adorable. She did a Christmas mini session, right? Where you book like 15 minutes and you get photos for Christmas cards. She hired some guy to wear a Grinch costume and had the kids sit on his lap instead of Santa. Mm -hmm. And it was adorable. The photos were so cute. Some of the kids were terrified, so it was totally perfect. And Grinch is like running around the chair that they gave him. Disney was not happy. <laughs> yeah, well, are they ever? So no, yeah, not much. So just like be careful when it comes to this world when you're using something else that you got from somebody else and you know it, mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. So better. I'll, I'll say quickly. Most people don't know this, but a lot of the money that people like Bill Gates and Paul Allen made were by sitting on patents. They had uh -huh. lawyers just, you know, searching and searching and buying patents and then looking for people who violated them. Yep. Um, so anyway, and we that's, are- And that's what Disney does, right? They license yeah. the trademark and the, and the copyright rights yeah. to people to make merch and stuff like that. That's that's a huge part of their, their money. Just an idea for everybody who's listening. If you have some kind of intellectual property, let's talk about getting it registered and how you can license it and start making money for not doing anything. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and discuss these issues <laughs> uh, very quickly, because we are running out of time, how yeah. do they find you? So my name's Samantha Bradshaw and you can find me at inlinelegal.com. I'm on most of the social media platforms on the same thing, except for Twitter. Don't look for me on Twitter. I'm not there. Um, <laughs> but so Instagram's the one I check the most often. For people who can't listen as fast as you talk, could you maybe spell that out, please? Absolutely. It's inline, I-N-L-I-N-E, legal, L-E-G-A-L. Awesome. So I don't think we're going to have time for the dead man walking quiz. Uh, maybe we can do a separate cut after, because uh, uh, Zoom is going to cut us out right now. So I'm just going to say thank you to Samantha Bradshaw for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Thank you to uh, the audience. And um, like, subscribe, share, call Samantha, see if she can help you. Do all sorts of nice things for your neighbors and help continue making the world a better place. And we will see you next episode. Thanks, Samantha. Thanks, Fred. Leave him a review. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.